0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to SecTools podcast by Campus. This is episode 48. I'm your host of the show, Sanoop Thomas. Our guest today is Abhishek Dutta. Abhishek, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, Thanks, Sanup. Thanks for inviting
0: me. Abhishek, you have done interesting works in the information security community in general for several years. And I'm interested to talk about your works. But before we get started into that, Let's take a step back and, and see your good old days about information security. How did you start uh, your interest in InfoSec or in tech in general, right? Um, what was your background? Where is it all started from?
1: Sure. I think uh, it, it started so long back that maybe I, I don't remember all of it, but I'll, I'll try to recollect whatever, uh, how it all started and share. Uh, I I think it started uh, sometime towards uh, late 90s, probably 98, 99 or so. I was in school and I was lucky to get a computer um, much more early than my peers uh, there in Kolkata. And I had internet also, but obviously that time there was no broadband or anything like that. We had a simple uh, dial-up modern-based internet connection. I, somehow, I, I don't remember exactly how, but somehow I was got introduced to IRC, mm-hmm. either through one of my friends or maybe through, I think uh, oh, there used to be one computer magazine during the early days called Chip Magazine, maybe through that. And yeah, I think IRC was <laughs> something that led to curiosity. And with curiosity, uh, exposure to uh, cybersecurity started. Uh, Interestingly, at that time, I don't think there were uh, many uh, companies uh, in cybersecurity space. Obviously, there were some um, globally. But uh, during that time, as far as I can remember, it was primarily people who used to find vulnerabilities, write exploits. And uh, then there used to be system administrators who used to protect against those attacks.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's good to uh, hear terms like IRCs and, you know, the the dial-up modems and whatnot remind of old days. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, subsequently, I think after, uh, after college, I uh, started in a very early stage uh, startup company called Ivis. I, I think uh, one of the earlier, earliest uh, uh, product company in the uh, cybersecurity space based off of India. Interestingly, I met the founders of uh, that company uh, in IRC only one of the founders was very close to me and we used to hang out with the uh, in IRC and that is how I started working for their company uh yeah I think that that was probably my first job and since it was a startup startup one though I was doing some a bunch of uh Know, security research related activities, but I also used to work on writing tools and uh, building up the product for that particular company. So uh, I would say kind of started moving towards more on building side of things as well, in addition to security research. and assistance.
0: My first uh, uh, information is about you, uh, just an inside scoop. We were casually discussing in my in my very early company um, with my colleagues. And, and one of the colleagues, um, which is apparently a friend of yours as well. I'm not revealing the name, but we'll probably discuss that offline. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but this is early days when Swachalit was not in existence. Very old days of um, null, null um, security community. Uh, just casually talking and your name pop up. You were introduced by or you're referred by um, that friend as this guy can actually write code as fast as how we can write emails. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm assuming that you probably got the... the yeah, yeah, yeah. The... <laughs> I can make some guess. I can make
1: some. Uh, I, I, are you talking about uh, your uh, you know, time from your uh, Mumbai office? Yeah, think, yeah, 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 right?
0: exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can make some guess. Uh,
0: and then since then, then uh, my uh, first knowledge about your work was uh, Sochalit. Um, for those exactly. who are listening uh, and and don't know about Sojalit it is an um, automation platforms that we heavily use in the null security community to host our events, our monthly events, because null is such a um, very vast community and and every cities and every corners um, has different different chapters. And the platform actually helps to um, uh, consolidate every events in like in one one website, right? easy for other chapter members to go and search it and and host events and see what's happening on the other chapters as well, which is a great platform. Well, how did that idea came up? Because uh, of course, there was some discussion happened before the idea of Swachalit um, started. Um, so what was the story behind it?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. The moment you ask uh, me about origins of Swachalit, I I remember uh, meeting Akash. I'm sure you know Akash, mm-hmm. right? Akash Mahajan. Everyone in <laughs> Null knows him. <laughs> yeah. I I remember meeting Akash uh, in Bangalore because I, uh, yeah. So okay, yeah. That, this is how it uh, happened. I think I think I was a speaker in the first NALCON, mm-hmm. right? After that. Uh, uh, I, I was working for a company in Kolkata, and that company moved to Bangalore. And along with that company, I also moved to Bangalore. So when I moved there, I was looking for you know people who are working on the cybersecurity space, and I got to know about this Nal community. And uh, I think uh, a scene or uh, I, mean, I mean folks from the Nalcon they connected me with uh, Akash, who was building up the community here in. Right. Mm. that's how i got connected to akash and I used to catch up sometimes so uh, akash, akash told me about uh, you know what he was doing with null and how he was organizing the null meets and all of these things right mm. and that is where i think the idea of uh, swachalit was born in fact uh, the swachalit uh, Name was coined by Akash Shinde. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think it's probably uh, Hindi for automation or something like that. I, think, I don't think it's Hindi for automation.
0: Uh, the origin uh, is from Akash and I could imagine. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 if, if I remember, I think he
1: was he was doing a lot of repetitive work uh, during organizing these meetings. And uh, he discussed how we can automate some of that. Uh, some of the simple things like you know sending emails uh, uh, somehow tracking registrations uh, uh sending the venue details to the folks who have registered for a particular event so at a high level the basic flow right and I I, I I thought i i had some time to, uh, back then I think uh, i just left the company that I was working on and I took a small break. And I started uh, working on my own. So I, I i thought probably this is a good time I will build something which will help this community. Obviously, I did not know back then that the community will grow so big. Uh, yeah, I think uh, that's how Swachhlet started with uh, me and Akash discussing the workflow involved in uh, organizing a meet and then uh, building some of the operations.
0: Interesting. By the time when you're, when you start building or working on Swachalit, um, um, were you a full-time developer or you started working into security already or how did security happens to you?
1: Actually, I I was always in between software development and security research Mm -hmm. because that's what I have always worked. Like I have mostly worked on uh, companies which were building security products. Like even my first job was uh, for a company which was uh, trying to automate the penetration testing even though I was doing pen testing and I was doing security research but a major part of my job was actually to build or you know write code to automate some of those processes. So I have always kind of you know uh, uh, wrote these two hacks both research as well as development side of things So by the time uh, when I was building Swa a I had already, like, worked for more than five, six years in uh, building products
0: as well. I see. Talking about playing between dev and and security, right? Uh, And your work is heavily on making sure the the dependencies are secure and what we can actually do to automate that and and, um, help developers to engineer securities in in better better shape. What do you think um, about the current setup in software uh, open source, largely open source software supply chains, because this is this is a problem that's been discussed over the years. Uh, multiple solutions have been um, rendered by different companies, open source and commercial. Uh, but I personally feel like it's not cracked yet. It's there was not a universal solutions yet for this. Uh, what was your take on um, open source um, third party software uh, security?
1: yeah good question so i think this is something that uh, i am currently focusing on both in terms of uh, security research as well as understanding the larger domain as well as uh, you know building open source tools to some to solve some of this problem uh, but uh, let me talk about my understanding of the overall uh, domain here right i think uh uh, uh, this uh, software composition analysis tools, right, which used to look at uh, third-party dependencies from vulnerability point of view, known vulnerability point of view, has been there for a very long time. Like if you look at tools like uh, Black Duck, uh, and I think you other also, I forgot the name, they have been there for a very long time. And then uh, then there are new generation tools like uh, Snake. White source and a couple of uh, other tools, which also solves uh, a similar problem also software composition analysis. But uh, my opinion, like even for uh, you know, when I was building product or when I was talking to other engineers or you know, CTOs who build product, everyone had this uh, thought that uh, you know we are heavily dependent on open source, not just in building our own products in terms of uh, open source libraries. But if you look at uh, most of uh, the infrastructure that we run uh, comes from open source software, right? We use databases which comes from open source software, and we use web servers, which comes from open source software. our laptops heavily depend on open source software. the open source is everywhere, right. But uh, the problem is that not enough visibility is there on what are the open source components that we are using, right? And how trusted they are. Right? This this kind of uh, risk perception or threat perception, I think, was always there for a long time, but just uh, that this got really accelerated uh, uh, when it uh, when uh, the solar winds incident happened. Right. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, everyone is everyone who's listening is familiar with solar winds, but uh, speaking taking the background, so you know, solar winds. Uh, I think they build software for IT infrastructure and you know, server management and uh, management. And their supply chain was compromised. And through that, uh, many of their high profile customers were compromised with very sophisticated. Now, this led, I, I think this is my opinion, that this particular incident uh, kind of led to acceleration of the overall software supply chain security as a concern and so a lot of people and a lot of companies are uh, trying to work on this uh, area i feel that uh you know this domain is still at a kind of like an early stage people are still trying to figure out what does an end-to-end solution looks like or you know what are some of the key problems that needs to be solved so uh, uh i i when i when i did a survey of uh, you know identifying the problem in terms of you know the breadth as well as depth of the problem one of the things that uh, uh, i figured is that uh, as per one of the linux foundation you know, report Almost seventy to ninety percent of most modern software is has uh, open source components. Like open source components constitutes seventy to ninety percent of modern software, and most of our security practices are uh, targeted towards the code that we write, not the open source software that we are consuming from outside. Apart from, you no know, simple vulnerability detection, and which has its own challenges as So. Uh, I think that's that's where the trigger started. That this is this looks like a fairly large problem, and this is definitely a problem which uh, needs to be analyzed and solved over time.
0: It looks like the the problem is definitely universal, uh, but the solutions need to be engineered according to the the size and scale of uh, the, the companies, right? Maybe for smaller organization um, to track number of open source softwares used in the applications, um, can be regulated or in a way security can actually take a call, whether uh, a specific, uh, open source frameworks need to be used. And basically like version controlling and whatnot, when the organizations are like heavily, like heavily consumed by different versions of open source softwares, it's easy to create a finding saying that this version is outdated but it's not that easy to fix those versions because some of them will actually end up breaking the application. How do we balance this? What's your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, very good question. So I think uh, you're pointing towards some of the harder problems of uh, this open source software supply chain as well as the conventional software composition analysis, Mm. right? so uh, one of the first thing is that uh, conventional software composition analysis like sca tools and conventional way of vulnerability detection based on a library name and version just creates too much noise imagine that uh, you are building a very simple application and you are you are, you are dependent on say uh, spring framework assuming your application is built in java now the spring framework is pretty large You are hardly using say 5% of the features of the spring framework. Now, any vulnerability, any publicly disclosed vulnerability affecting the entire spring framework will be identified by conventional SCA tools as vulnerability in your application. Right? Just because your application depends on, say, the Spring Framework Jars. This is one of the biggest problem of the conventional receivers. Even if your application is not invoking the vulnerable method in a you no know, vulnerable open source library, there is no way practically your application is vulnerable or exploitable. But still, current generation will identify those vulnerabilities. So it's like a slippery slope. Right, you fix some vulnerabilities, and new vulnerabilities are continuously identified. So this is one big problem that needs to be solved. Some of the tools are trying to solve this, but it is not that easy because a C A tools needs to build uh, code analysis static code analysis capability so that it can uh, you know uh, identify whether there is a uh, uh, you know, control flow or data flow uh, uh, from your application into a vulnerable function in a vulnerable library. And many a times when uh, uh, open source library vendor reports vulnerability, the vulnerability advisory or the vulnerability report do not always uh, contain the information required to do this kind of analysis. So currently it's a challenge Hopefully, in future, uh, with adoption of uh, this uh, open source vulnerability schema as uh, you know, a standard way of reporting vulnerabilities, maybe uh, the CA tools will do a better job and identify uh, the third party library vulnerabilities for an application that are relevant and not everything. That should significantly reduce the noise. Now, coming to your question specifically, I think you mentioned that uh, uh, many a times these tools just report a vulnerability and fixing it is not always easy. That is because if you look at the dependencies of an application, it is not a simple list. Dependencies are not like application one depends on this 10 libraries. Sure, I mean, in, in your package manifest, like say form.xml, build, build.gradle, or say, uh, package.json or say, I think in uh, Python's case requirements.txt, you can define a set of uh, libraries that your application depends on. But those libraries in turn also depends on a bunch of other libraries, which in turn may also depend on libraries. So if if you really look at it, right, the dependencies or the open source dependencies of an application is really a graph, which at this point, say even my tool also, it identifies a problem in one of the libraries, one of the nodes in the graph and tells you that this is a problem. As a developer, it does not make things very easy for you. Uh, you still have to find out that how did this library got introduced. You still have to find out the library or the root dependencies, which introduced some other transitive dependency and then figure out how you can update it. So this is another hard problem, or I would not say very hard, but fairly hard problem, which uh, uh, I'm trying to solve as well as, I think a lot of SEO tools are also looking at how to solve. Like really provide actionable advice to the developers so that they know what to update and they know what is the impact of update. I think I think on what uh, does a decent job for some of the uh, ecosystems on this, like it, it, it can tell like uh, uh, if, the, if there is a vulnerability in a lower level transitive dependency, I I, I think it can identify the top level library that should be updated. In order
0: to update uh, those developers. Oh, you're referring to depend dependency bot? Dependabot, yeah. yeah, GitHub's yeah, okay. dependabot. Yeah, I yeah. see. Okay, yeah, right. Talking about your your tool on safe dev, right? This is something that you initially uh you started fairly recently. What's the goal of this uh, product or rather the 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 framework?
1: Yes. So uh, uh, the the primary tool which we are building as, as part of this uh, non-safe tape organization is uh, called VET. Mm. So we wanted to solve the problem of uh, open source library vetting, which is extensively done manually by security teams. Like you, you will see that in a lot of organizations with when a, when a development team wants to adopt a new library, they have to raise a request that the library needs to be vetted by the security team. Right. And uh, vetting is largely a manual process, like the security team will look at uh, how popular the library is. Uh, does the library comes from trusted sources? How often releases are there? Is it maintained? Are there known uh, critical vulnerabilities? Based on a certain set of criteria, the security team decides whether this library is acceptable or choose. And based on this vetting, the engineering team goes ahead and Uses or not, or looks for an alternative library. The idea is that to start with, just solve this problem because, as we were discussing, we will have vulnerabilities and we will have lots of uh, different libraries in our dependency graph, and updating all of them may not be easy when there is an issue. Also, People hardly look at uh, vulnerabilities, or oh, there are there are no uh, no uh, there are no vulnerabilities for libraries which very few people use. I have hardly seen any publicly available CVE for very unpopular libraries, libraries which are not popular at all. Right, but these unpopular libraries are also extensively used in major applications. The idea of uh, building vet is that to help automate this process of vetting, so uh, open source library vetting by security teams, in a way where it can be adopted by different security teams
0: while having
1: the ability to define their opinion of vetting, right? Not to be tied by the tools opinion of what is good, what is bad, but security team defining their own opinion of what is an acceptable open source library in terms of policies, right? So say, for example, in your organization, you want to use, uh, you want to automate the process of open source library vetting. And you may already have a set of guidelines. With VET, you can write policies as code. This a very simple DSL, you can write those policies, and VET will automatically find out whether a particular library adheres to your defined policies or not and it can be integrated with CICD to automate the process.
0: So it's it's definitely um, customizable to like depending on which organization what is their policies um, the tool doesn't um, take like its own stand but it basically like takes the definition from whatever we feed as an input and then vet based on those rules.
1: Yes, so there are some uh, uh, off-the-shelf policies, like say for example, you want to get started with a ready-to-use policy. Mm-hmm. You can use policies that uh, you know, checks for higher critical vulnerability policies that checks for a certain set of licenses, which are conventionally considered to be risky. Mm-hmm. It also checks for the OpenSSF scorecard values it checks for uh, popularity of the uh, you know the open source library using like how many stars GitHub stars are there, how frequent releases are made, when was the last release made, how many developers are contributing to that project. So there are a bunch of uh, criteria uh, for which uh, the web tool collects the necessary data as evidence, and policies are applied basically on top of this data to you know evaluate whether a given open source library is acceptable in the organization's
0: context. Yeah. That has like larger scope for organizations to adopt and then customize what, like how they want it. Uh, uh, What I can actually think about is many organization doesn't even have a regulation or a policies to define uh, what uh, should be the criteria to um, accept third party library, right? Most of the times the developers request for a third-party libraries and if that goes into like a software registration process or or guideline, sometimes security is involved in it and sometimes security is not involved in it. And ultimately they get to use the, that um, third-party softwares or open source softwares. So um, uh, how do we get started with like defining a security policy for using uh, or introducing new open source softwares uh, in the organization what what are the like a baseline criteria that a company should actually look forward to
1: yeah I I, I think uh, I agree with you uh, not every organization would have a policy like this but uh, I, I have generally seen that uh, you know a little, a little larger organization uh, they have uh, some criteria based on which they approve uh, new Mm library, right? So uh, uh, I I don't think there is a lot of uh, baselines publicly available or uh, any standards are there uh, using which you can vet uh, an open source library. It's largely opinionated and very organization specific. Mm -hmm. But uh, some of the common criteria that I have seen many organizations use is basically a combination based on whether there are any critical vulnerabilities in the library, whether the library has a license, which is allowed by the legal team of the organization and how well the library is maintained, whether updates are published regularly, whether bug fixes are done regularly, so I generally have seen this. Primarily, three criteria which uh, many teams use. In addition to that, uh, I think uh, the Open Source Security Foundation, the OpenSSF, uh, is heavily pushing something called the OpenSSF Scorecard, which is uh, basically a uh, set of uh, you know quantification or, or uh, you know numbers that identifies the maturity of an open source project on mm-hmm. under various criteria, like how fast, uh, I mean, uh, whether they follow certain best practices or not. Mm-hmm. So this OpenSSF scorecard as it is uh, largely adopted by the open source ecosystem will probably be very useful in terms of automatically deciding whether a uh, given open source library. Meets an organizational, uh, security and quality standards.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's basically to have, a, um, have a number to justify, like you know, like a ranking to justify um, whether the software is well maintained. Um, yes,
1: it, it's it's more of an assessment on a certain set of criteria, best practices, and criteria for open source projects. As a consumer of open source project, the scorecard will give you a quantifiable measure of how well maintained and uh, you know the security best practices followed by that particular open source project.
0: Um. So, Vet currently is uh, open source, and uh, um, it's what it's under MIT. It's no, under it's this Apache License. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's completely open source. It is uh, developed in open source. We, in fact we have got uh, community contributions as well mm-hmm. people have contributed code as well as uh, you know, some GitHub actions uh, configurations as well
0: yeah and it has pretty decent documentations to you know look into it and and then um, adopt what whatever the company actually wanted to build um, as, as definitions right and it's pretty uh, decent frameworks to integrate into your existing security review process. it's more scalable in a in an organization.
1: Yes, I I think any organization uh, which has some open source vetting process, they, they can be benefited by using that. Yep. And, and, and we are happy to add any feature as required. We are really looking at real life use cases and driving adoption.
0: And then Abhishek, uh, I would love to actually pick your brain even more time. Uh, there are so much thing, thing to discuss about open source when it comes to open source software supply chains and, and security of that. But uh, with the time constraints, before we wind up, uh, what is your uh, piece of advice to the people who are getting into application security or product security um, or open source um, tools uh, in general? Sure.
1: <laughs> that is a very, very generic and probably uh, <laughs> a question which will have an opinionated answer. Yeah. But uh, let me give uh, See, my fundamental uh, suggestion would be for anyone who is into product security or taking care of security from an organization uh, is uh, really look at problems, okay? Don't start with tools. There are just too many security tools out there, right? Too many security products, too many security tools. Don't don't try to pick some security tool within your organization and call it a security program. Don't do that. Look at uh, the larger, uh, you know, The big picture of your organization, identify the assets, look at what is it that is there in your organization that which needs protecting, right? Then look at uh, 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 who are the potential attackers for your organization, right? Unless uh, your potential attacker is a nation state, you don't really need to depend against such sophisticated defense, right? Your defense uh, strategy, as well as uh, capability of defense really depends on uh, What is your perceived attackers? So basically look at the threat model. Then look at solution. Look at the security architecture. Look at solution for securing uh, or mitigating the identified risks for your organization. And finally, look at tools that will allow you to implement solution. Don't start by tools. That is definitely one strong suggestion that I have. Apart from that, uh, I personally, I think, uh, uh, starting to code at a very early age had helped me a lot. It really helped me into looking into how tools work. Extending tools, contributing to open source as well as building my tools um, it really helped me a lot. And uh, Yeah, always be curious. Don't, don't just uh, you know look at tools as magic, see how it works.
0: Thanks, Abhishek. It was wonderful talking to you and discuss about uh, open source software supply chain security and all the work that you have done in uh, security community.
1: Thanks, Anand. It was great talking to you. <laughs>
0: Thanks everyone for listening to the podcast. We'll see you in the next one.